My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today for this continued celebration of 100 episodes of the Wonder Dome are Dr. Jeff Hull and Ben Preston. Jeff was on episode 55 of the Dome, Meta Leadership, and Ben was on episode 81, The Space Where Worlds Meet. And I found my way to Ben because at the end of my conversation with Jeff, which was just fucking awesome, where we explored different leadership stances and what it might look to show up as a leader who can draw on multiple stances rather than being like an alpha leader or a beta leader or, you know, a dominant leader or, or a inclusive leader. All of these sort of polarities, Jeff, in, in our conversation, meta leadership works with, with what is it to be a leader who can, can work with those polarities and embody them in the right moment at the right time. So that's a great conversation. And at the end of it, I asked him, who else should I talk to? And he gave me one name. He said, Ben Preston. Ben is a brilliant regenerative designer who is working at the frontier of uh, how we build spaces and places where real cultural change is possible. So then I had a conversation with Ben, and I thought we were going to talk about regenerative design. And actually, we talked about ancestry and lineage and identity and uh, and that makes sense in retrospect because those are all of the kinds of topics and material, the medium in which cultural change is possible. Because much of the, the constraints of our, our kind of dominant capitalist culture is we only know each other in the roles that we play in society as a, the role of consumer and these transactional, the role of provider, the role of, of maker, of inventor, of entrepreneur, like all of the, some of them are really sexy roles, others not so much, but we don't actually know each other. And as a result, we start to think that we are our roles. We start to think that like we are inherently greedy always, all the time, that, that we are inherently designed uh, that, to, to survival of the fittest, to winner takes all. But, you know, that, that, is, uh, that is one aspect of reality. That is far from the whole picture and more and more we're seeing, in fact, that it is a reduction of a much more complex and beautiful, diverse picture about our planet and our species. And that story is killing us and it's it's killing the planet. And I mentioned in, in an earlier episode with uh, my guests, Yotam Schachter and Lawrence Barron or the second, like these conversations, these sort of where I regather with people allow for a kind of depth and for me to step into some fear and not knowing, which can be hard as kind of the host who's expected to play the role of expert. 
but these this space was like hey let's talk about the 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 moment we're in as a global civilization and how fragile it is and also how much beauty there is and how much potential there is and also how little how how little time there is and what does that mean for us as individuals and as a collective so we we dive deeper into these themes of leadership and space making and culture making and history and ancestry all in in the spirit of this recognition that many 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 people agree that it's time to totally reimagine who we are what we're capable of and what kind of world we want to build because the extractive economic the the dominant extractive economic model that we live in is ex, is extracting all of the beauty in life out of the very place we call home so if you care at all about what some people will call climate change um or global warming then I would argue, and this conversation will hopefully help you step into that, in a way you really care about uh, evolution and species change and culture change. Because the cultures that got us to this moment, they have a lot of gifts to give us, a lot of wisdom, particularly some of the cultures that we've tried to, to, that have have been snuffed out consciously or unconsciously by the economic model we live in. And that economic model and that dominant culture is not going to get us to the next place. It's just not. So what is? Well, we certainly don't have all the answers, but one of the spaces that emerge in this conversation is a, is a space where people can actually experience the truth that there is more than just this. That there is more than just this story that we are units of consumption competing with each other, and may the best, strongest, greediest, sneakiest one of us win. That just is a, it's just a bullshit story and it's time to end it. All right, this is fun. These intros, I'm doing these intros, I'm kind of getting a bit more, I'm leaning into this question of what does the Wonderdome stand for? The past hundred episodes have been about exploration but as I mentioned in the intro, they're also a place for bold creativity and fierce hope. And I want to lean into that more. We need more fierceness in our lives, more willingness to stand for something. And if the Wonder Dome stands for anything, it is for the highest and, and greatest good for our species and the planet. And this conversation, this beautiful conversation, is, is just about that. So let's get settled in. And hear what Ben and Jeff have for us. Oh my goodness. Jeff Hall, Ben Preston, welcome back to the Wonder Dome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having us back, Andy. I uh, yeah appreciate it. I'm looking forward to having a chat with my good mate Jeff and you. It's gonna be interesting to see what emerges. <laughs> it will really, it really will be. And um, for those who have been paying attention, they'll know that the reason the three of us are here today is because I had a gorgeous conversation with Jeff at some point uh, 
you know, within the past year. And I said, Jeff, this is great. Who else should, should I talk to? And he said, you got to talk to Ben. And, uh, and Ben and I finally arranged, despite uh, being on opposite sides of the globe, a chance to have another beautiful, powerful conversation. And when I thought about uh, the constellation of people I'd, I want to bring together for this sort of 100th episode journey, uh, I was like, oh, this is perfect. Jeff and Ben, we can have some kind of conversation about the beauty and the fragility of our global society, the impacts it's having on our uh, local communities and the ecosystem, the ways in which we might show up as leaders and positive actors in this moment in our collective history. Like there's so much we could talk about and I don't know where we'll go, but I know I want to talk to both of you about that stuff. So thank you. Thanks for saying yes to the invitation. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here, Andy. Thanks for having us. Mm. Mm. Okay. So where to start is the question. And I think, I think I, I want to start with the um, sort of texture and flavor of a moment in my life that I find myself in and use that as a doorway into this conversation about um, leadership and and social and ecological regeneration and sort of what, what paths ahead might be waiting for us. And, and so just to give you a little bit of that texture and flavor, um, I won't share the whole story about how we arrived here, but my family has arrived in a place where, um, although this was not the initial game plan, we are having our, our third and final tiny human is arriving to the world in about a month. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank Congrats. you. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. It's really it's exciting. Major. It's so major. Yeah. And there are the parts of me that like we were on the on before we started recording, Ben, you know, it's morning in New Zealand and Ben's like, yes, great. I got to do some contemplation and drink my coffee. And, you know, and I was like, so the parts of me were like really happy for you. And other parts were like, ah, will I ever have that in my life again? The long, slow, spacious morning. So, so just like to name that very quotidian, you know, like, uh, like, hashtag, you know, dad life challenge that I'm in. But it also it also like evokes some deeper. I'm also reading this um this book by Naomi Klein, who is the author of No Logo and uh Shock Doctrine. And her latest book was published in 2017, so about five years ago, and it's called This Changes Everything. And it's about the realities of uh climate change and sort of late stage neoliberalism and capitalism and the ways in which uh, we're, we seem to be coming to a, a real crossroads where we're going to have to either choose our ecological planetary future or our short-term financial gains for the few. And, uh, and I'm, it's like having a really, although I've cared very deeply for many years about these questions of climate and ecology and human future, the book is having a very particular flavor of, um, it's having kind of a pretty radical psychoactive impact on me. And, and that's layered on with this like very real question that I think any of us who are involved with caring for a younger generation, whether we're doing that as parents or teachers or, or elders or uncles or whatever the kind of role is, if we have some relationship to a young person, we're kind of going like, what world are they going to inhabit? And, and mm -hmm. 
And there, the answers are varied, but some of the answers are pretty scary. Um, so, you know, I just, that's like the, like, I'm like holding this sort of, uh, parental energy. I'm holding this kind of deeper radical energy around climate action. I'm holding some fear and I just like love to, to be with the two of you and co-holding that stuff and exploring, um, exploring that together for the time that we have. Mm. It's beautiful. I mean, yeah. I just really appreciate where you're sitting. Um, because it to me it encapsulates the core essence of the quandary that we as humans are grappling with and you talk about bringing in a next generation and knowing that that adds you know some a legacy for you and a future for them that will likely go a century ahead mm. and so what does that mean to know that someone that you nurtured into the world will be here a hundred years from now as we sit in a planet that may not support human life a hundred years from now. Mm. Mm. I mean, I was listening to you, Andy, at the beginning of this conversation and you used two words that I'm still vibrating with just in the pleasure of being with my dear friend, Ben, who I love just so much and I'm so grateful to be connected with and I'm so glad that I connected him with you. Um, but you use the words beauty and fragility. Mm. And so I'm sitting with the beauty of having the ability to have a conversation with people I love that are all over the world at the same time and the beauty of recognizing that we can feel and connect on this incredible planet um, with people we love in a way that we never could have done even 10 years ago, let alone, you know, a hundred years ago. So there's such a beauty in that presence. And yet I'm also sitting with this fragility because that very same ability is, uh, created through technologies and through a system and through an economic, uh, program, I guess is the best way to put it, led by institutions and leaders uh, that I work with every day um, that are, in, for the most part, completely unaware of the shadow side of what has been created. Mm. And, you know, the, the fragility you point to is so incredibly real that uh, I'm reading I'm currently about halfway through Jeremy Lent's Web of Meaning, mm. um, which I think maybe I got from Ben. I'm not sure. Um, but, you know, he just talks about the fragility of this only 100,000 years or so that we have, as human beings, been in this dominant role on on the planet. and how much longer it will last is unknown unless we really take a deeper look at our values and become much more aware of our relationship with nature, which has definitely become completely, uh, I guess, alienated is probably the word that I would think of, disconnected. Mm. Mm. So, fragility mm. and beauty. That's mm. what I'm sitting with. Mm. Thank you, Jeff. 
Ben, what's happening for you? Yeah, I'm just I'm just gonna vibe off that for a moment because it it um, even before you started speaking, Jeff, the um, I read this changes everything back in 2017 when it came out, and I can't remember in depth details of it, but it had a big impact on me at the time. I was living in Melbourne, and I was I was part of this group called the Center for Sustainability Leadership that was just kind of in some ways blowing the lid off my um, sort of views of the issues that I had really carried in my heart my whole life and was trying to find ways to align my life with contributing to. <clears throat> and that that notion of beauty and fragility and what, what you just described, Jeff, it feels to me like I've witnessed and we have witnessed this kind of evolution of this kind of activist sentiment from originally this like quite mm, quite aggressive, quite forceful view of we must change, you must change, you must do things differently to actually a much more um, in some ways introspective kind of fragility that acknowledges that actually these systems that oppress the world around us are not outside of us. They're not things that we can dictate to that exist outside of our behavior and our bones, but rather are part of the soup that we're swimming in and are conditioned by. And actually that there's a certain grief that comes with it. And and actually, you know, Bio Kamalafe talks about this really well. The the responding to the urgency described by Naomi Klein requires slowing down in a paradoxical mm. kind of way. Mm. And I think there's something there's something you said, Andy, about what world are future generations gonna inhabit. And you know, the question for me is what what world are we gonna inhabit right now? And actually in a in a, again, in a paradoxical way, we get to choose that and we don't. Regardless of the circumstances that are going on around us, we get to uh, choose where our attentiveness lies in our experience and therefore what kind of experience we have, regardless of what is happening around us. And I think the the time of that kind of aggressive activism of trying to force change upon these external systems i think is passing and, and i think it it's it's leading at, you know people across the world not just the sort of quote-unquote leadership space which i kind of have some you know not have a tenuous relationship with at times but you know like grassroots artist communities activist communities like they are really starting i think to reckon with the reality that this destructive tendency or the, the the sort of maladaptive tendencies we have in terms of how we interrelate with each other and with the ecological systems that we inhabit etc are not something that we can change outside ourselves it, it it's an emergent organic process that starts with understanding that the the change begins with acknowledging the way that these systems live in our own bones and our behavior and there's something just the last thing i'll say on what jeff said about bringing to awareness in these spaces of leadership and so on in, in, in the world and in the in industry and in government and everywhere else. I actually think, I think the awareness is already there. I don't think that like the human organism as a cognitive system can't help, but engage and understand what we're doing. I think the problem is how we then reckon with that. You know, it's like Carolyn Miss talks about, I only came across this recently, but she talks about this idea of powerful guidance and it being exposure to ideas. When our cognitive system is exposed to ideas, our perceptual system is exposed to ideas that threaten 
to demand significant change in our behavior, our life, our system will do everything in its power and has all sorts of sneaky evolutionary tactics to keep us ignorant to the information coming into our awareness because it knows that if I truly honestly reckon with this information, I need to change my behavior. I might need to change my relationship. I might need to quit my job. And I think we saw that with COVID, you know, COVID hit and so many people had been existing in this state of cognitive dissonance that they couldn't name, they couldn't understand. And we're starting to see that reflected in, there's a term I came across recently of urban, um, urban exhaustion which is this like almost metaphysical exhaustion that seems to be gripping everyone in urban environments globally. And yet when COVID happened, this like massively destabilizing event that by virtue of the fact that it was a shared experience that everyone in society had, it couldn't be denied. It couldn't bypass the sneaky perceptual filters we have. Suddenly we see a raft of resignations. We see a raft of people changing their lifestyle choices. We see a raft of, and I think that's, kind of like that's indicative of that process and so i think that's kind of where we're at now is in this interesting beginning space where people are just starting to have that first experience through covid of the tenderness of accepting what on some level they already know and then enacting the changes in their lives that might actually give rise to more life-affirming more nourishing more soulful most more soulful and more loving ways of existing, behaving, loving, being in community, being with each other, being with nature in the world. Mm. Mm. Jeff, I really want to uh, hear what's cooking for you as, as you share that beautiful reflection, Ben. I, I notice a voice in me um, before we move in that direction of what's happening for you, Jeff. I do notice a voice in me and maybe... I would just love to hear, Ben, what you make of this voice. There's a voice in me that that sort of goes like, yeah, but, or maybe in a more upright way, it's going, yes, and, and the but or the end is, there is a way in which our, at least as I understand it, and I'm not an economist, but as far as I can tell, there's something that happened with our with our sort of social structures that up until a period of time in human history natu- there was natural corrective energy which and this was like if there was someone in the tribe who wanted power and wanted more power and more power which seems to be like a impulse a drive a status seeking that is to varying degrees a part of our evolutionary inheritance if there was someone who let that drive take over or listened to that drive fully, the rest of the tribe had corrective action. They had ways to limit and mitigate the power that that person might be seeking. And, and, uh, and the result, if they sought that power, was, was exile, you know, it was like, which was a, could, could be a fate essentially akin to death. But we, we arrive, flash forward 100,000 years to, Jeff, your point about this kind of web of meaning we've been attempting to weave as a species. And we have some systems that have allowed uh, the, the sort of humans who have strong drive for power, for control, for status, to access a particular set of technologies that allow them to like accumulate perhaps the largest buffers 
against the kind of behavioral change that you're describing, Ben. Like, in other words, I can, by dint of my wealth and my success, I can keep creating sacrifice zones in other parts of the world while I live inside my bubble, which may be, I may not be totally conscious of the fact that that bubble is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, but still it's a luxurious freaking bubble. Uh, and, and, and inside of that bubble where I can sneakily avoid that, that awareness, I, my avoidance, if I'm one of these people, you know, like the CEO of an oil company, let's say, or an investor, shareholder, that the interiority of that bubble, as I avoid the truth, has an outsized impact on all of these other places and communities and, uh, and areas where more and more people are doing exactly the work you describe of, um, of like, okay, we just want to find a different way to live. So I just want like, so actually, yeah, I, I want to, how do how do you both hold that tension? And is that a tension? Am I, am I missing something? Is there, is there some way in which, you know, that we might lean into this paradox that there are people who are avoiding the truth and their avoidance has a particularly outsized impact on our collective capacity to adapt. Yeah. I might, if I can just respond super quickly, um, yeah. I think, yeah, I totally agree. And I think that that cognitive dissonance that you're describing of like, something's not right here. Things are shrinking. I don't, that's the sort of perceptual break that I sort of described before. It's, 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 coming to a collective acceptance that, okay, we know this is happening. We can no longer deny it, despite the fact that actually much of our cultural and social structure is set up to keep us blind to some of these things. And, um, and, I, and I think it's, it's in some ways, it's a change of evolutionary conditions and narrative. You know, as you say, in, in most of our evolutionary history, that behavior of using a technology or a tool to give yourself a sort of advantage over the rest of the tribe might have actually had benefits in terms of genetic inheritance and 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 mm. survivability mm. and so on. That's no longer the case. And I think part of this is us adapting to a new set of evolutionary conditions. And with that, you know, I think that the change has to start with us as individuals. But from that, absolutely, there's these cultural and social systems and economic systems that we have inherited from previous generations that at their core have this post-industrial complex baked into them, which there's a lot like um, Capra and Louise's The System's View on Life gives a really beautiful kind of summary of the emergence of post-industrial thought and the sort of um, mechanism, the, the mechanical thinking of Descartes and Cartesian thinking and how it embedded its way into most of our post-industrial complex and so on. And that, you know, we we know kind of how that worked. And there is a task to unwind that, but I also think there's a risk of if it's a it's a it's a paradox. We we both need to be aware of that and work on deconstructing and adapting those systems, but we can never lose sight of the fact that those systems live in our own bones and we also have to do the work of re-embedding ourselves evolutionarily within our context and our environment. Mm -hmm. Jeff, what's what's happening for you as you hear us work this? <sighs> Um, I resonate with a lot of what Ben was saying, and I think it's, um, you know, I vacillate between being an optimist that uh, nature has her ways with us, um, and then being a pessimist that we, we are having our ways with nature in our cultural um, evolution of 
that's been you know driven through by power in the way that you're describing Andy and that that sort of imperial style um interconnectivity and building of technologies and everything is it's running out of steam but it may be too late and so that's the pessimistic side um so there is this paradox that Ben was speaking to but I'll stick with the the optimist in me um resonates with this metaphor of the virus. It's not even a metaphor. It's actually a direct uh, connective narrative of how the virus in the last couple of years basically ignited a emerging shift in consciousness for many, many people in the West, you know, born of pain, born of suffering, born of, loss, you know, burnout and seeing people in one's family get sick and not survive. And, you know, I was born of pain, but I step back and I think about, so this is, it doesn't sound very optimistic actually, but I step back and I think about nature and her power to disrupt a narrative. You know, we, we, we're very quick to get into conversation around what we humans need to do to fix the situation. But I wonder sometimes if nature herself isn't fixing it for us. <laughs> mm. Um, mm. Because this virus was in many ways more powerful than any narrative that an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos could create. Um, you know, this little virus, and I say little because it's tiny, uh, disrupted all of humanity in the space of 18 months. And that's nature doing her thing. And, you know, so there's a way in which, you know, nature will take care of us. If we don't, if we don't, if we don't do it, she'll do it for us. And why does that make me optimistic? Because it means that we need to be more humble and recognize that we are not separate from nature. We are part of this evolutionary process. And this wake-up call that came through the pandemic is something that if we can own it and integrate it into our consciousness, we can break apart some of these power-driven narratives and reassert our, our awareness of how we are in a web of inclusion with Mother Nature. And... So that wake up call is available to us. And I, and I, you know, just the fact that we three are having this call talking about things like regenerative principles to reconnect us with nature and our relationship with the earth um, gives me hope that, uh, you know, some of this power dynamics that you're describing. Andy may maybe something that we can shift out of, we can shift beyond, we can transform. Um, Jeff, one because thing there are conversations like this going on around the world. So, and it's ironic that the technologies that have been created by these institutions that are often led by these power-driven individuals, but you know, it's like. The joke is on them, right? Because they, they created these and they created these technologies that are allowing people from the margins 
to have an incredible influence and that mm. may be more powerful in the long run. Mm. Yeah, Jeff, that's actually a really uh, connects to, to something I want to inquire into. And Ben, I, I welcome your voice. You said earlier you have a bit of a tenuous relationship to the kind of the leadership space, and, and I kind of welcome that perspective. But Jeff, I know that that you have really kind of taken your stance as your calling and your vocation to help expand um, what people mean when they say leadership and what kind of leadership is possible, and also what kind of capacities we need to develop and bring online. And, and one of, one of the themes that I'm aware of in your work is connects to this insight you have about bringing the margins in about, Mm -hmm. about the ways in which adaptive leaders who, um, can call on kind of different, we might call them postures or energies or stances or, um, kind of a way of way of leading can be more inclusive and be less sort of like alpha, I have the answers and more like, you know, beta is a word you've used, uh, like, tell me what you know that you can see that I can't see because you have a stance and a vantage point out on the quote unquote margins that actually is central to whatever our path forward is. And, And I wonder if you could speak a bit more to like how how you're relating to that question of what is it for those of us who feel called to exercise leadership around this question of how do we mobilize more of us to wake up and, and make progress on this, this future, this, a beautiful future, as opposed to a scary one. What, what does that look like when it comes to, to going to the quote unquote margins, to, to bringing in the quote unquote margins, maybe even to humbling ourselves and realizing like maybe we're the ones at the margins and we just can't see it yet. I'd love to hear you speak to that from the kind of vantage point of, of the work of great leadership. Well, I appreciate that because that also gets to what I, why I do remain optimistic um, about humanity in that in the last few years, there's been a, a strong emphasis in leadership development and in writings around self-awareness and emotional intelligence. So, you know, mindfulness and practices that bring all of us who who participate in them a greater sense of humility and awareness of our own um, limitations, like how we're run by the narratives from our communities, our families, our histories. So self-awareness has become really crucial to the success of leaders as they emerge in the last few years and now I think the next evolution is towards social awareness, which is great, creating a greater awareness of the impact of uh, leadership decisions and leadership strategies, leadership behaviors on the communities in which they operate, you know, these leaders operate, whether it's a corporate or a nonprofit or community based, whatever, whatever. Um, you know, system that that leader is embedded in becoming more socially aware and more permeable. And I did in my writing use this phrase beta, um, which was to indicate kind of an opening to leading from a place that's more inclusive, more welcoming, more curious, and not always directive and authoritative. But I think there's an even further place that we can go, which I call meta, 
leadership, which is really recognizing that everyone, as you point out, um, Andy, from all walks of life, from all places within the community, within the system in which we operate, can both lead and follow at the same time. If we have a level of social awareness that gives us a um, willingness to step back and to listen more deeply and with more, with more curiosity and to recognize that some of the most creative and innovative ideas come from the margins. And a really good example is welcoming back in an Indigenous perspective that has been, you know, in a sense of totalitarianly um, almost destroyed over the last hundred years by the Western capitalist leaders and their systems, systemic destruction. So if you know, if you have a, if you become more socially aware of the benefits and the gifts of these marginalized um, communities, populations, uh, leaders, teachers, then the opportunity is for more and more leaders to wake up uh, and to step back and to become more a part of the solution to you know engaging in the world in a way that's life affirming, nurturing, and ultimately regenerative. Which is, I think that you know, this is what I've learned from Ben to move beyond just eco sustainability, which is still kind of a controlling mindset. You know, where people are trying to fix the environmental problems through technologies or whatever. Um, but if we move more toward a truly regenerative mindset, then we become humble, we become permeable, we become curious, we become we have a recognition that we are inside the system we call nature, that we are not separate from the environment. We are the environment and that we shift from inside ourselves. What I, and I know Ben's going to speak, can speak to this so beautifully that when we shift from inside ourselves, right down to the cellular level, you know, using practices that wake us up as individuals, whether it's meditation or yoga, that it's at the cellular level that we recognized and are humble um, members of nature. We are part of the community. Then we can become more regenerative. And so it's it's operating on two levels at the same time, individualistic, but also aware of our social responsibility to be um, permeable. And I think that's what I mean by meta mm. in our mm. leadership behavior and being. It, it's really getting back to the essence of being part of nature. And I'll stop there because I know Ben is just so eloquent on this subject. So Ben, take it from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I mean, I guess what, so I have, <clears throat> as you said before, Andy, I, I have quite a tenuous relationship, I guess, with leadership. And so it's a bit of a different, not tenuous, you know, I've, I've um, maybe just a slightly con contrarian, contrarian, like slightly different perspective and, and um you know, it's interesting. I find that these days in most of my work, uh, where I find leadership that inspires and that I think has a quality that can make a significant difference is what we might consider the margins. You know, actually, it's 
it's in um it's in Te Ao Māori, so the, the indigenous people of Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's in the disability community. It's in the rainbow community. It's in the queer community. It's in the um, migrant community. It's in children. It's, you know, that pretty consistently is where I see leadership, where I go, there is something for me to learn from this. Far more so than a corporate boardroom or spaces where the Western mind might consider leaders typically live. And and actually most of what I see or a lot of what I see in corporate spaces are fear-based patterns of control. They're fear-based attempts to try and maintain something that is familiar in the face of an environment that's changing whether we want it to or not. And I think there, in some ways the risk is that or not the risk, but I think something that is really important for anyone who's in a position of leadership to be aware of, and this is not to, um, I have a huge amount of respect and really encourage anyone who is in a position of leadership who's questioning this stuff to, it's it's a, it's an important journey and, and, you know, we need everyone to go on that journey. But there's this kind of, there is this, this, sort of double bind that exists where for a lot of people in positions of leadership, the reality is that once we start to change these, these mindsets and these approaches towards something like Jeff describes in, in, in meta leadership and, and acknowledging the more, I guess, distributed nature of the way that change actually does occur in reality. Um, and, and this is not, this is not a weird metaphysical thing. If you actually look at the world and how change occurs, it happens in a distributed way where you can't point to any one place and go, okay, that's where it happened. You know, there might be an initiatory kind of action or something that happened that catalyzes a significant change in a social system or an environmental system. But, you know, there's this metaphor about a, a, for a, for a carver carving a big piece of stone. He might, he might make a hundred knocks on one piece of stone and and there is no discernible change to the rock. And then on the 101st strike, he hits it and a massive chunk chips away. Was it the 101st strike that caused that? No. All of the preceding 100 strikes created the conditions for that 101st strike to have this catalytic effect. And, and it's exactly the same in the, the change that we kind of inhabit. And there there is this risk that as people start to transition to that and start to embody a more embodied way of leading and engaging in these systems, things are going to change. You know, the hierarchies that have maybe, you know, us at the top or are going to change. And, and the mind, I think, and our conditioned self can come in very easily and perceive that as a threat because to the point that you made before, Andy, about our kind of evolutionary history, um, there is benefit to being at the top of the tribe. It's a position of safety in the social structure and it's a position that we can kind of rest easy in. And so if we start to perceive that our position in that perceived hierarchy is at risk, our bodies will go into threat perception mode. Our body and mind will start to go into something's wrong and I need to change it. And that's where, to Jeff's point again, about somatic practices, yoga, meditation, 
mindfulness that starts to open us up to what's actually happening in our body rather than just running the script of what we've inherited or what we have been conditioned to believe or think in a certain situation. That's where that stuff starts to come in really, really um, necessarily because we need to understand and be able to notice when our body starts to go into fight or flight, when our body starts to go into freeze, when we start to go into a fawn response, when our amygdala starts to hijack our system, we need to start to notice that stuff so that as that change starts to occur, we can relax and actually trust a deeper truth that the changes that are occurring will look different from what we're familiar with, but that there is this, you know, you spoke before Andy about somewhere along the lines, we seem to have lost connection to this like vital motive force that guides life. You know, the systems that we have today aren't guided by that spark of life that seems to help move things towards a sense of vitality. What Nora Bateson is describing in her Afanapoesis, this sort of emerging theory on the way that life coalesces towards vitality. We seem to have lost that and it and it it's bringing us back to a trust in that, that though my condition kind of um, ideas might feel a sense of fear about this or a sense of threat, Actually, when I can tune in and I can really trust, there's almost always a sense of settledness in the body, a sense of relaxedness, a sense of like trust beneath the kind of condition threat perception. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think tuning into that is really, really key. And then from that place, we have the, pers- the, the potential to move into more uh, a more evolutionary regenerative narrative where our interdependence and sort of stepping into the shared dance of relationality with you know that kind of social um that next evolution in leadership that jeff described around the social that allows us to step into that relationality in a way that can lead to real vitality real abundance real growth Mm. um and that that i think just leads us all to more it just leads us to more joyous more fulfilled lives and i think at the at the heart of it that's what we're seeking you know We've been conditioned to believe that it's money or it's whatever, but actually those things are, you know, attempts in my own personal experience, I can't speak for everyone, are attempts at finding stability and safety in the world. But actually there's a deeper, there's a, there's been a deeper truth in my life that um, finding that in this kind of settled acceptance and, and, and basking in actually just the real beauty and gift that is, this experience that I get to have in this human body with others, mm. Mm. Um, mm. with all the pain, all the shadow, all the challenge, all the joy, all the love, you know, that's where, that's where sustainability lies. You know, that's where a sustainable form of this that can lead me towards engaging in this change consistently and meaningfully begins. Wow. Yeah. I'm, um, there's a lot moving in me right now. For some reason, the thing I, I most want to presence, and I hold some like kind of, I, I sort of hold some sadness around this. It's kind of a, a sort of a tragedy of our, of this dominant cultural narrative that many of us have, have grown up in, is the fact that, and this can be used and abused, and there's a, there's a sinister element to this too, but it's the fact that like, if I 
am just deeply evolved. I'm part of a species that is deeply evolved to find safety and solace in the in a sort of communal tribal group context. And one of the ways I find safety and solace is sort of doing my best to make sure that my survival needs are met and my social needs are met. And in that context, in a, in a really healthy group context, that can be an incredibly vital, enlivening, joyful, that the, that the point once that, the, that safety is there to the extent it can be is not to seek even more and more safety and more and more power, but rather to then use that as a platform for experience and joy and play and discovery and creation and invention like all of this stuff becomes possible in a really healthy container like that. But the sort of tragedy, the sadness is that in the so-called dominant culture in which so many of us are, I'll just speak for myself, in which I have benefited from so many of the material privileges that that culture enacts to me because I'm, I'm born in a certain place and in a certain body that gets has access to a lot of those material benefits, I don't like there are so many people like me who never actually get to feel that vitality. They only get to feel the approximation of it because they've got a house and a car and a job. And, and as those things that we take for granted as signs of stability start to crumble for more and more, right? Like as more and more of us fall off the precipice of our so-called economic stability to see that all of this is quite fragile and that jobs can be lost and, and, and uh, 401ks can be cratered and all of these sort of things that we're trying to hang our hats on disappear. That threat response you talks about, you talk about paradoxically, like we entrench even deeper and, and we never realize that like on the other side of that letting go is um, perhaps, perhaps if we can survive our way through it is something much more beautiful and vital and alive. And, and maybe like the, the last two things I'll say on this is to really underline this is one, it's really hard for us to imagine an alternative story until, until it's there, until someone's imagining it for us. Like Ursula Le Guin, the, the speculative author said something like no one could imagine the end to, to monarchies until the monarchies ended until just enough people imagined it and made it happen. And in that same way, it's hard for us to imagine an end to this extractive oil-driven society, and it's even scary to imagine the end to it. But if, if enough of us can, then we might discover that vitality that's waiting for us on the other side. And, and then the last piece I'll share, and I want to hear how you all are playing with this, and I've shared this on the, sh on the podcast before, is like back in the times of Benjamin Franklin in, in uh, colonial America, American settlers would, would quote-unquote be kidnapped by indigenous tribes and not in every case, but in many cases, uh, people would come to, to quote unquote rescue them. And the people who were kidnapped were like, I'm not going back to that. You want me to go back to this super hierarchical society where I have only so much space to grow and have agency and autonomy? Like, no, I'm going to stay here with these human beings who have discovered that if we live in a more generous, egalitarian way, I can actually be more myself, paradoxically, that I can actually have more agency, even though I have less uh, social status. And so like people like me, again, I'll try and use myself, have cotton, have experienced moments of awakening 
where they go, oh, like I am trapped inside a story that tells me that uh, this is all there is. And if, if I wake up to that trap, suddenly I find the vitality. But the tragedy, the sadness is that like, we haven't designed a society that allows for people to wake up to that. And, and I just wonder what you, what you both make of that. If, if the call that I hear you both making is more of us need to do our work and more of us need to wake up, what's the context, what's the possibility, what's the, the framework or the frame in which more of us can do that work? Uh, and maybe this is my urgent need to control that's kind of showing up. So feel free to push <laughs> me on that. But like, I want to just hear how you relate to that, that paradox that like, we need to wake up and we don't even know what waking up feels like. So how do we know what to, how to wake up? Yeah, I think, um, big, big question, Jeff, do you want to have a stab at that or? Well, I don't know about having a stab at it. I can say what came up for me as I was listening to Andy and, mm. um, I'm, I'm, resonating with what you're saying andy because i think that as a american white male in the you know as one of the top of the pyramid in terms of privilege and terms of intersectionality i mean socioeconomically very fortunate and having grown up in that western system and and benefited from it um on many levels in terms of uh you know, I've never worried about food on the t- on the table, getting an education, all of those things that we in the West, and especially, um, you know, white men in particular, I mean, just sort of take for granted on many levels. I think that uh, I can be just very saddened by what you're sharing, because it's so true that we're caught up in our cultural narrative, and yet feeling alienated from each other, from the community, being driven toward burnout, um, caught up in organizations that are internally toxic and then externally, technologically destructive on multiple levels to humanity and to the planet. It's easy to become very disheartened. Um, the optimistic side of me, which I'll move towards quickly uh, <laughs> i love is, that side of you by the way Thank you. <laughs> is that you know if you if you look at what's happening in the nordic countries which are also part of the west and capitalist with with a little bit more of a social energy or social narrative underpinning um you know there's things like the international happiness indexes and social study, social equity studies. And there are places like Finland and um, other, you know, the, the Scandinavian countries and where I just moved to the Netherlands that are really working effectively towards a more socially just, equitable, integrated um, narrative. And so it, it's not all gloom and doom. Um, I think that uh, if you read The Listening Society, uh, which is a very powerful book by um, a pseudonym, Hansi Freinacht, I don't think it's a real person. Um, I think it's probably a couple people, Ben, has we've talked about that. Uh, you know, the Nordic ideology is one that I resonate with and 
feel it gives us a bit of hope in the West. And then I also, you know, reading people like Tyson Yunkaporta from with an indigenous perspective from Australia, you know, here is someone who grew up in a as a part of a marginalized community, um, Aboriginal background. And clearly when he writes about his own story, he was bullied, he was ostracized. It was, it's a very painful um, upbringing to read about. But on the other hand, you know, he's getting invited to speak at conferences all over the world because people want to hear his story. There's an opening, there's a permeability, there's a, there are people in the West I think, and I include myself in this, I hope that are becoming humble and recognizing the pain that the Western, um, you know, for all of its strengths, the Western cultural narrative has wrought on the planet. Mm -hmm. And we're looking for, we're looking for alternatives and we're listening. And the one thing that makes me the most optimistic is that, you know, those stories coming out of the Aboriginal um, like songs of, of Yonkapurta can be heard now all over the world instantaneously. It doesn't take 50 years to get that message across once people are open to it. Mm. Tyson can be heard by everyone um, instantaneously. So, you know, as we think about becoming more permeable in our cultural narratives and our and doing our own inner work, just as you said at the outset, Andy, of this podcast, you know, whoever listens to this, it may be, you know, a small number of people, but that small number of people can have an outsized impact on their own organization, their team, their community, their the world, and ultimately the planet. Mm. And that mm. wasn't possible as recently as 10 years ago. Mm. Yeah, Ben, I want to hear what's up for you, but I'm just one thing that that has been working in me, Jeff, as you as you play with that optimistic voice is is Ben's earlier metaphor of of kind of the rock carving. Right. Right, and the way that something can seem sort of immutable and and permanent and forever until suddenly it's not. And, uh, and the way that water can wear down rock as well as these chips. So there's, as well as chipping away at it. And so there's something I'm in touch with about this, like, oh yeah, Andy, remember, you don't know which, which chisel strike is going to release the piece of the rock that will reveal what the, what the sculpture is. But if you just sit there staring at the rock and and assuming there's nothing to be done well that that's one surefire way to uh to guarantee that the rock will continue to, to hold its current shape and so i just like feel a little softening around that I'm like oh yeah like just give give our give yourself and give us the grace of that possibility even as we also honor that like changing the shape of of a rock is is no no small feat that it's not a guarantee and a given and and that, like that paradox, is something that I'm in touch with. Ben, I'm curious what's happening for you. Mm, yeah, I'm just like really basking in this and really appreciating the conversation and the um, the perspective. And yeah, to to that point, Andy, about you know, if we sit just staring at the rock, it's not going to change. And so many people 
don't feel like they have a choice. You know, it's not it's not like they're sitting looking at the rock because and not contributing to changing it because they don't want to. They don't have the chisel. They don't have the tools. Mm. There's someone literally mm. standing with a barrier saying, stay away from the rock. Mm. And so it's, I think it's the reason why for me, a sense of vitality is so key in this because it's that sense of vitality that says I can, and actually not just I can, but life has brought me here to contribute to whatever is next. And I am so, so needed in that. I'm not irrelevant. And it's it's one of, it's probably the great, sadness that has driven so much of my life this sense of oppression you know like before jeff started sharing i said jeff do you want to have a stab at that yeah that is not a metaphor that in any way shape or form conforms to the way that i see the world or it's quite when you think about it quite a violent yes directive metaphor and yet i just it just came out of my mouth without even thinking that is a direct example of the way that I am oppressed by mm. the systems around me to act and to vocalize myself in the world in a way that actually doesn't conform to the way that I want to be. And so I didn't choose that. And that so many people lack that choice. And we live in a system, a series of systems, a series of structures that to extend your story about these people in early colonial America who were kidnapped only had the experience of what it was like to live in a system that doesn't depress them or their expression whenever they step entirely outside of it. And so I think, you know, just giving more people that opportunity, which is a, it's, 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 it's a function of the basic dignity of being alive that in being here, you have a right to experience that. Um, and not only a right, but actually in, uh, it's it's part of what life, I think in many ways is calling for from us and inviting from us. And I just, I'm so grateful for this topic. It's, I'm just in the middle of, um, probably will be submitting today a PhD research proposal. And oh. it really speaks to this this exact topic. Like the whole point of it is the the research question that I'm, playing with at the moment is how might we cultivate an embodied sense of living vitality in individuals and groups to inspire creative co-evolutionary participation and life-affirming behaviors in collectives including communities and organizations and that's the whole point is that how can we we don't have alternatives you know people are standing looking at the rock going uh, something in me is compelling me to walk towards that rock and do something. I don't know what, but something's telling me to walk towards it and contribute. But all of the signaling in my environment, you know, the like the barriers around the rock, the security guards, the signs that say, you know, you can only enter if you look like this or have mm-hmm. these set of life experiences. All of these things are telling me you have no right to be near the rock. But something in me is still compelling me. So there's this intense sense of cognitive dissonance. And I, yeah, I, I'm not really sure. All, all I can do is tune into what is compelling me personally to, to move towards that, that rock and contribute to the change. Mm. And right now for me, that's very much around supporting kind of what you talked about before, Andy, this like the sense of settledness in ourselves and the relax this like relaxed quality that can 
allow us to feel a sense of living vitality. But then once we feel that sense of living vitality, engaging our unique individualistic creative capacities to then participate and reshape what's happening around us in ways that give rise increasingly to more vitality over time Mm -hmm. and through creative practice through you know the ways that we share ourselves in the world that's the thing that's really bringing me alive right now and that i'm really excited to kind of step into a bit of a new uh a new a new journey in my own life on that and it and it feels like that's happening for so many people right now and it i do feel a huge amount of hope around it actually i just think what i've felt in myself and seen in people around me in starting to shed some of the shackles of the way those oppressive systems dictate to them who they should be and how they should be in the world the only way i can describe it is magic happens Mm -hmm. um and as you say i don't think we can i don't think our mind can comprehend how what what could lie beyond the next horizon line what could happen um and the sense of vitality and and change that can occur whenever we tap into that sense individually and collectively and start to use that to reshape some of these systems that we all live in and amongst. Mm. I want to say briefly, one one kind of aha I had as I listened to you that I really want to underline and draw out for myself and for us and anyone who might hear this is this opportunity we have in the same in the same way that you tune into like oh the way that those people in colonial america experienced an alternative was was sort of by virtue of a, a rather extreme circumstance that that pulled them outside of their context and uh and and allowed them to see an, a different possibility and by the way earlier when i told that story i used the word kidnap in quotation marks because you know that was often the dominant cultural story was these people had been kidnapped but in fact what was more likely happening is they were even just getting a glimpse through the virtue of of trade and conversation and cultural interchange and kind of leaning into that even more. Maybe that wasn't always the case, but I think that's sort of my theory. And and so like in this moment right now, for for those of us who care about this question, who are feeling the vitality, who are drawn to the rock or maybe going like, oh, the thing that they're protecting is not even the thing we, we need to care about. We need to go stand over here and and look at this rock that's just sitting here that most people aren't paying attention to, is to create spaces where where every one of us can have a felt sense experience, something we feel in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds about like, oh, this is different than what I grew up in. This is different than what I thought reality was. And if that's possible, then that means reality is more diverse and abundant and more uh, variable than, uh, than I knew up until this moment. So like that's just an offering to the world. And in a way, I, I actually realized that this podcast is an attempt to do that. It's a place where for an hour or two, someone can sit and hear possibilities that they might not hear in most corners of their life so i just want to like thank you ben for really underlining that piece that that part of the work is to just create spaces where we can have an experience that might otherwise not happen if we didn't create it yeah that feels really true and just Mm -hmm. you know i think there's a lot of that going on there's a lot of like 
I've really appreciated my exposure and experience and the emergence of like a lot of um, grassroots art collectives and just there's a lot of people doing really interesting work creating spaces imaginative imaginative spaces for new possibility where it's possible to inhabit ourselves in a different way mm. um, and I mm. think that's really key to this mm. Jeff one uh feel free to play with this question or just play whatever you're alive to in this moment. But I'm, I'm kind of aware of a possibility. And as someone else who also does uh, leadership work and work with different organizations who can have an outsized impact on lots of people, I'm aware of the way like on, on quote unquote bad days or, or days where I might am not, maybe I'm not in full alignment with my values there's a way in which I'm, I'm having a palliative effect on these leaders and the organizations, helping them kind of feel better. <laughs> and, and sometimes that's important as a, like um, a way into deeper work, right? Like if they don't feel safe and okay, then they're going to be threatened and, and that's not useful, but on really quote unquote good days or aligned days, there's a way in which, uh, we can bring these experiences into organizational context and with inside this container, with inside the old container, something new can start to be born that the organization itself can actually shift and become yet another place where people in community start to be together in ways that are, are run counter to the dominant sort of cultural narrative. And I, and I wonder Jeff to, to like, to what extent, do you relate to your work in that way or to what extent is maybe there more work to be done there in the leadership space to see leadership and organizations as one vector among many, but an important vector to create these kind of alternative experiences and foster them and, and allow that vitality to take root in ways that maybe as Ben said earlier are being restricted by commit fear based command and control structures. Wow. Um, there's a lot in that question, obviously. I mean, I, I'm sitting with what Ben shared about, uh, you know, the, the level of individual sort of breakthrough that's possible when we, um, begin to open up to the fact that, you know, we're all traumatized on some level and that we all need to heal and it starts at an individual and a communal level to find our way back to practices that um, are healing, that are whole, that bring us back to a whole story about our humanity, that are humbling, that reconnect us with nature, that reconnect us with uh, our families or with our, with our communities. And, you know, when, when you ask about leaders, you know, on good days, and as you point out, there's good and bad days, right? Um, sometimes I really don't have the energy to walk with or beside this leader that I'm struggling with who is attached to his his or her power narrative. But on good days, I start from a place of compassion and empathy and recognizing that even the CEO is caught up in a system that he didn't build. He is perhaps benefiting from it, but it's been built over centuries. Um, goes, you know, mm -hmm. going back to 
Descartes or all the way back before to whether it's, you know, historically um, colonial machinations that have built up power dynamics that, that we sit with today in systems. And so I start try to start from compassion and empathy and seeing the person sitting across from me as a whole human being or the team sitting across from me as a whole community of beings and then try to stay awake to the possibility of emergence. You know, that nature herself is really in charge of what's happening on the planet, not mm. me, not us. Mm. Mm. And, you know, what's possible is always this fractal creative possibility of something occurring in the space that changes everything forever. As, you know, Ben was pointing out or you were saying about chipping away at the rock just at that right moment where the rock shifts and is never the same again. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. And mm. so I always hold the possibility that, you know, I'm sitting across from the right person at the right time and the right moment to open up to his or her healing journey, to rediscover his or her essence, her healing story, and her then power to be impactful within her organization, within her or his community. You just never know what's possible. Mm. So mm. that is such uh, like that is landing so deeply with me. This I'm hearing in you a, a commitment, a values aligned, like a deeply aligned commitment to show up in a stance. And yeah, there are days when it's uh, that's maybe that stance isn't always accessible, but when you show up, you're, you're, you are holding the highest and best possibility as best as you're able for this whole group. Even if they don't see it or feel it, even if they're still inside a particular story, even if you're still inside a particular story, there is some part of you or core in you that's saying, there's something that could happen here if only we could just let it. What would it look like? What is that? And how do I listen for it? How do I invite it? How do I patiently except that at any moment, any one of these people might realize that there's healing work to do or repair work to do or creative work to do that they haven't seen until this moment. How do I just be the invitation for that? Right. Hmm. Mm. Ah, well, um, gentlemen, we've, I've just looked at the time and went, Oh goodness, we're, we're here. We've arrived at our, we're a minute from our, or actually we might've just turned into our time boundary here. That feels to me like if I were, if, if this had been a coaching session for me, thank you, Ben and Jeff, for like two coaches for the price of one. Like I'm really leaving here uh, <laughs> with a, a sense of a reminder and an invitation to how I want to keep showing up in the, in the cultural spaces that I inhabit. And, and I was noticing, it's so interesting to see this energy in me today about like, how do, okay, but how do we fix it? Okay, but what do we, we got to, and it was like, oh yeah. So thank you both for regrounding me and, and, and being such generous listeners and generous practitioners. I, I want, I really want a lot of people to hear this conversation because it was quite beautiful and touching. Mm, yeah, it's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really. Yeah. Enjoyed coming back on and yeah it's just been a real gift to be able to listen to you both and um 
yeah you know it's magic happens when we get together and do this right and we can kind of yeah riff off each other like this so yeah just grateful very grateful for the opportunity and um and yeah i look forward to um look forward to to more mm-hmm. likewise and i just want to say one final thing which is that i feel like i'm sitting at the table with two powerful meta leaders that's what the two of you are you're mm-hmm. speaking into those spaces of emergence of heart of what's possible of healing of wholeness that's why andy your ability to even make this conversation happen your desire is leadership mm-hmm. I uh, just going to say I'd add to that like on my better days but it's also a thing for me that it feels really necessary to just have the constant humility of like yeah I'm always at risk of just slipping back into those old patterns you know and it's something I always have to just be um yeah just really aware of you know um so yeah but beautiful yeah beautiful thanks for sharing that Jeff yeah that really that really touched me thank you uh, real brief, if folks listening want to, like Ben, for folks who want to maybe read more of your writing or your research or some of the the work that you're doing, where should they head? And then and then the same question to you, Jeff. I'll give you each a chance to just share that out loud. Yeah, cool. Thanks, Andy. Um, yeah, people can find me on my website, ben-preston, P-R-E-S-T-O-N.com. Um, and yeah, my email's on there, but it's also ben at ben-preston.com. Um, yeah, feel free to drop me an email and yeah, definitely encourage people to reach out, especially as I'm going into this research, you know, finding mm. opportunities mm. for, for meaningful collaboration with people who really are interested in exploring this further is going to be really, um, yeah, is, is something that's really lighting me up right now. Mm. Mm. Thank you. How about you, Jeff? Likewise, uh, fastest way to find me is through jeffreyhull.com and just drop me an email there or on LinkedIn, look up Jeffrey Hull. Um, Or if you're interested in coaching, because many of the folks that may listen to this are coaches or want to be coaches or um, have interest in the coaching profession, you can look me up also at the instituteofcoaching.org. But like Ben, I mean, I'm always amazed that the right person at the right time in the right space shows up. And I'm always curious and interested in connecting with people that are uh, doing amazing things in the world, no matter what feel, even if it feels small, there's no such thing as small anymore. The only thing that's small is the planet. Otherwise we're all big. Mm. So Mm. reach out. Mm. Beautiful gentlemen. I really like, I don't know how realistic this is given the distances that separate us, but I, I really look forward to the possibility that the three of us might meet someday in person in three dimensions. I also, <laughs> uh, I also hold out hope that perhaps we'll gather again in the Wonder Dome in some new configuration. And uh, until then, thank you both deeply and go well, go bravely. Thanks for what you're doing in the world. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing and engineering services from Jim Serqua at Sump Pump Studios. 
The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.